Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good afternoon. Welcome to V Radio. On this edition, we are proud to have the guest uh, Martin Sprang Olsen from Denmark. Uh, Mr. Olsen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, generally, what I like to ask a new guest in particular is, you know, just let's get a little background because I know that a lot of our, uh, you know, in particular our Western people may not know who you are. So introduce yourself essentially, give some, you know, background on, you know, what you've done, and then we'll get into what brought you to this, this direction. Uh, sure. I um, I guess uh, the direction I'm on now is mainly because both my parents are pictorial artists and I grew up in a very artistic environment sort of conservative in the same way they were also socialist but in a conservative way because they they were into preserving nature and uh, old buildings and they were into uh, old art forms and stuff so i i grew up in this mix of uh, ancient values and uh, different new approaches to things and and none of my parents had a job ever uh, so i've never had a job in my life either because we were not just just not easy to in, in institutionalize and and my brother's the same not easy institutionalize yeah i like that so i guess you guys just kind of made money through art then or i mean how did you get by um yeah art and uh when my brother and i was about uh well i was 19 he was probably 16 we initiated a stone school because there was a a couple of american stone people were visiting for a film and and we got involved in that and then after that we we started up a stone school and i I um, in, incidentally, I was leading that for 15 years. So we built out all the stunt people in um, in Scandinavia. So I, I still today I have a lot of associates that are that I used to train on my stunt school that maybe now moved into pursued other careers as well. But uh, the stunt background is also something where you don't have any limits and you don't feel the the, the borders of uh, mundane life. Uh, so that also helped freeing the thoughts and improvising with different concepts of the world. I did a lot of martial arts too, and of course, uh, bringing the Eastern philosophy into this also gave the sense of um, balance and uh, taking knowledge out of nature. Because I, I still today, I think you can find everything at just watching nature, observing how things balance itself all the time. A lot of the problems I think we end today because we detached ourselves from from that when we invented agriculture. Then we thought we could be um, detached, but but actually it won't work in the long run as we can see now. Yes, absolutely. Um, that actually uh, brings me when you said martial arts. I, I know you said several different styles. Um, just kind of give a rundown. Which martial arts were you were you practicing? Well, I, last time I summed it out, it was, it was 19 different ones. I think now I will stick to, to the ones I learned and then try not to put any more. So, but it was basically all the the hit uh, styles, you know, karate, aikido, hapkido, jiu-jitsu, judo, boxing, kickboxing, uh, four or five different types of uh, kung fu and uh, wrestling. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't mention it all. Uh, by heart, but it it sums up to about 19 different styles. But for the past uh, 10 years, I've done more or less solely uh, internal Chinese martial arts, which is something that is very easy to apply to traditional Western art because it's the same. I think it's the same place in your 
consciousness that you try to aim at, a place where you work intuitively, uh, improvising, uh, working with the within the laws of nature, and then moving with the energy instead of against it and thoughts, things like that. That's really interesting, actually. I, I've always had an interest in martial arts, but ironically, it was pretty much my uh, the money situation that made it impossible. Uh, it's like every time I would get stabilized to the point that I would want to get involved, you know, some one, you know, something or another would happen that was beyond my control to keep me out of it. Um, most of my interest was in Jeet uh, Kune Do and all of Bruce Lee's stuff, like his Jun Fan and the way that he applied his stuff to Muay Thai yeah. and yeah. the other styles. But, um, but you see, I think that the, the, the situation is different in Denmark because we have a lot of associations. That's one of the things that that we're very proud of here, that you can attend associations very, very cheaply, inexpensively, and you can train for a year for maybe $100 or something. So, mm -hmm. uh, And people teach for free. I have a, a Kung Fu school myself where I teach for free. So that's just the culture here. So if you had lived in Denmark, you would for sure have got the training you needed. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's. I've heard a lot about different countries over there in Europe where some of these things are you know, definitely a bit more progressive. I know that... You know the the Zeitgeist movement and the Venus Project has certainly had uh, a lot more um, like luck over there. The this you know the screenings were always much much more people you know things like that, and I guess obviously more celebrity attention, which is what brought you here. Um, and so that's kind of like you know what I would like to talk about is so how do we go from you being a an artist of many forms, whether it be martial. Uh, you know, music as well. Yeah, we should probably mention that. You, you you had a music career. You want to describe a little bit about that? Well, uh, most of my mother's family are musicians in some sort, and we always did uh, concerts in the family. So I was trained in classic guitar and uh, composition from a very early age, and, I, and then I moved on to piano and uh, a bit of conducting too. I, I went to England and had private lessons in composition. Uh, this is all very traditional, classic stuff, and and I also did a little bit of jazz and uh, Latin, but but I'm not very good at that. And eventually, I finished my um, last year of my musicology degree in England, where I um, I had a lot of the classes that you could not have in Denmark because they are <laughs> simply too old-fashioned. But I really liked that system they have in England, and. Uh, I ended up writing my final dissertation 25 years after I started my my degree. So I've had music on both a theoretical level and a practical level for all my life, but I've never really wanted to make a career out of it, even though I did uh, make um, records uh, and, and concerts to a certain extent, because I thought uh, there was too much to be done in the... Uh, physical world um, trying to um, apply the principles from uh, martial arts and uh, and uh, the internal training to things like teaching young kids and uh, changing the, the paradigms of teaching. Uh, so I've always been involved in things that were not, it ended up being not personal, but, but having to deal with larger groups and uh, uh, initiating um, projects, smaller scale, of course, than the Venus Project, but similar projects where you would be conscious to the, the future and the environment and, and things like that. Right. Well, you know, um, so with music, martial arts, you know, pictorial art, all put together, one together, you know, it's 
it's amazing. You know, you've, I guess you you must have this real right brain thing going on, and and that that brings us on actually to you know how did you discover the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist movement? Well, I gotta I gotta thank my students. I I uh, not in the stunt students, but I had I started other systems too. I had a for for years I ran a school that was based on song dancing and fighting because I thought those are the oldest stars and every culture will be based on song dancing and fighting. So why not? See what happens if you train people in that on an, again, an abstract, intuitive level where you can mix the different expressions. And what happened was, again, that people got in touch with parts of themselves that were not uh, in our daily life, uh, so, so commonly in use. So uh, people started evolving in, in different ways and, and discovering new talents. And some of these students, they... Um, I think it must have been from from the very beginning of the Zeitgeist uh, movement. They uh, told me about the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist movement, and I, I got I, I was thrilled. I was actually I tried to be part of the movement be- before it, there was a movement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so, I had heard that you had read Jacques' book before. Uh, well, yeah, and uh, also I um, to me he's a hero because it's very easy to find the weak points in society. It's not rocket science, but to actually find uh reasonable common sense alternatives based on scientific research i have not seen anyone come close to uh uh jack fresco in that field yeah that's that's basically been my premise too and it, it's kind of tough cuz like people will will say you know you sound dogmatic or you sound fanatical or you know because of the fact that you're so confident in something and I pointed out to them, you know, like, you know, about my experience was just, you know, I'm no I'm nobody's sheep. I I move from ideology to ideology. If somebody can prove that something is better, then I go there. And it just so happens that what Jacques is doing, you know, is so I mean, mind you, the guy's had so many years to work on it, you know, so therefore lots of experience with it to to work out a lot of the problems with it. And I think that's the reason that it comes off as such a well thought out idea. Yeah. Um, and and so it's it's tough sometimes because people you know they they accuse any group of people that are really confident about something as being fanatics and I'm not saying that that doesn't happen but um, I for one would not have been involved in any of this if if it was like that for me I don't I don't get involved in that stuff I got involved in some politics and you know there was a politician or two that I was really into and then the more I studied the more I found that. You know, these guys were just people and, you know, that they had flaws and a lot of their ideologies had flaws. And this is the first time that I've never had to make any kind of leaps of faith or or swallow any bitter pills to get behind something. And now, I, I guess, you know, like, you know, you wanted to be part of the movement then and, you know, you you were obviously, I mean, did you get to see Zeitgeist of Denim first? You know, is, I mean, were you following it from that time period or? Mm, from the first film, uh that's not the addendum, but that's a right. The very first film is just Zeitgeist. Yeah, so that's uh, that's the one I I um, I had to take it uh, in 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 stages because I think a lot of people I think I think also I heard Joseph, Peter Josephson said say that in an interview that uh, people get a little afraid of the seemingly um, conspiracy approach he has to nine uh, eleven and things like that. But so I had to take it in 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 small bits. And I came to realize that he was right, and it was actually uh, him uh, trying to uh, debunk the myths and the uh, uh, conspiracies of other people. Uh, and so he was not the one making conspiracies. I, it took me a little while, and I think that happens to 
a lot of conscious people that are they are scared of what seems to be going on in America right now, where everything is a conspiracy. I mean, uh, pollution is a conspiracy, you know, and uh, <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. We are aware. If people talk about conspiracies, we, we, um, you know, we, we raise our eyebrows a little bit. But I found out that there was much more to it than that, and uh, I got a, to be a big fan of what he's doing. I think that's uh, amazing. Yeah, that's you know the conspiracy stuff. I mean, and that isn't what the Zeitgeist movement focuses on at all. But you know, I, Peter, Peter got involved in that stuff like a long time ago, well before he ever met Jacques Fresco. Um, or even knew what a resource-based economy or the Venus Project was. And it's basically um, a matter of, you know, moving beyond that stuff. I mean, you get into Zeitgeist Addendum, which is the first movie that talks about uh, the the Venus Project and also the interview with the economic hitman. Did you ever get a chance to see that one? That's the second Oh, yeah. I think I've seen that ten times. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was was pretty good. Um, And then... We move on into the third film, and where a lot of the things that yeah, I think that the third film really was kind of a reaction to the, some of the negative reactions um, from other people uh, was that um, basically that there were a lot of people, for example, who brought up this human nature argument, and then they would always say, you know, what does Jacques know? He's just some old man. You know, he has no credentials. So Peter starts the film with a whole bunch of credentialed people, one of them from Stanford University, you know, who are basically uh, going after the the human nature myth. Now, so for you, I mean, I guess, you know, being somebody of such a diverse background, uh, how did the third film find you? What did you think of it? Well, to be honest, I found it a little dry because of the things that you mentioned. Uh, I didn't need uh, all this, uh, but I do realize that it was the right thing to do. I I, I do realize that this was... Uh, relevant right now for this time and space but to me I would have loved it to be a little more crazy and out there uh, because I'm already convinced <laughs> you know? uh, and and of course I knew a lot of it and Peter says himself in an interview that he, he gets bored when he tries to explain things that he thinks is, is common sense and to me common sense has got out of Fashion. I, I simply don't know why common sense is so different. It's so difficult to apply in a discussion, and I, I think it's great that people are doing this. Uh, but I, coming from a, the, the artistic background, of course, my focus point might be a little more in the um, intuitive level, the expressions that comes from a deeper place in your consciousness and. In fact, the collective consciousness, I think that is what might save us because only in the collective consciousness can we make decisions that can work really, really fast, uh, like you saw when the fall down of, of uh, Soviet Union. That, that it was like a lot of people had already made the decision subconsciously and all of a sudden they could just apply it to reality. And I, th- I think that what's, that's what's going on uh, anyway. But if we can take these things more into consideration and deliberately use more essential part of our uh, consciousness and personality. I think things will move faster, but I I do understand why he wants this film to sound uh, more down-to-earth than what is maybe what he's done before. Well, that's just it. He, I mean, he, he does artistic stuff, and then he just gets chastised by it, you know, for it by the intellectuals. You know, he puts... Yeah. 
compelling music in his movies, and then people accuse him of mind control. You know, he put... Like, his first film, actually, ironically, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Zeitgeist, the very first film, was, was actually an artistic presentation that he did. He's a musician, too. Yeah. Um, a marimba player, and uh, he he did this live thing as kind of a recital, and then other people liked it. They asked him to put it on the Internet, and he had no idea that it was going to explode into that huge thing that it became, and that just happened to be where he was at the time, you know, looking at 9-11, looking at the banking system, looking at you know, the the men behind the curtain, things along that you know line. Um, yeah, and it's just, it, it's interesting that people took it so seriously. He didn't really expect that either. But, um, and I and I understand where you're coming from. It's kind of a, we're going to, we're going to upset one group or the other, either the intellectuals yeah, or the artists. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't mind being upset. Uh, it's mm-hmm. better to convince the right people. Another thing I liked about the first one that has really been criticized is I, I studied also, uh, religion history in university, and I studied ancient Greek. And I was writing a dissertation on Dionysus and the time before Christ. So I knew about a lot of these things, and I actually read some of the books. I even read books uh, about, um, written by Achaius, who was, I think, part of the uh, research group for the start of the first film. So I was so amazed to find a guy that could uh, so outspoken and could actually express these things that have been kept secret <laughs> within Christianity uh, for, for 2,000 years. So I like that part of the film too, that he, he said myth-making is actually part of our Western culture and it's something that we, we must realize it goes very deep. A lot of the problems we, we are facing today is because we base uh, our modern world on Roman uh, the Roman society, the Roman concept of the world. You can see in America, you even took all the uh, the technical expressions from the Roman, um, you know, the consulate and and uh, capital and all this. This these these are from Rome. And uh, if I mean, if the American democracy had just been more inspired by the Greek uh, society, I think it would have. You've seen a different reality today. Right. That's yeah. I understand where you're coming from there. And ironically, we actually do pretty good in Greece. Uh, the Zeitgeist movement there is very popular. We have uh, a lot more attention. They were actually able to get the movie trailer on the mainstream TV. Um, and there are scientists over there and such that are really interested in what we're doing that came to the screenings. And I mean, it's it's interesting. I guess you know people call that the the birthplace of logic and uh, and reason. <laughs> And uh, they're in a lot of trouble right now. Their their uh, their their economy is crashing and falling apart. And there, I guess, there've been riots and protests, and yeah. it's it's kind of personification. And I know that it is a lot easier for people who are in that situation to embrace it. I mean, I myself, I live in Michigan near Detroit, where all the cars used to be made, and now technological unemployment is a very real reality where I live. And I mean, they're even automating video stores now. And I'm just watching the jobs disappear around me. And, you know, where I live in particular, even with an education, you're lucky if you get into a fast food restaurant like McDonald's or Burger King. You know, you actually have to compete for those jobs, and that's all that's left. And I think that that's kind of a a test bed example because as they find more ways to automate more of our our work, um, it'll just keep happening. And, you know, the people at the top don't really care about what that does to everybody else. And it's very sad. It is, it is. But that's why we're doing this, hopefully, is to give some people some, some hope and, and a different direction. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know why this could come as a surprise. I mean, my father, who's turning 90 this year, he was taught in school that when his grandparents grew up, there would be no more labor because everything would be done by machines. So this is not something that could come as a surprise that one day the reality would be like that. And uh, it's good. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's good, but it's not good if it's not addressed the right way. Right. That's actually, you know, and that's one of the problems that we've had with telling people about it is, you know, uh, free market economists in particular, they'll they'll give you these books from like back in the 40s that supposedly disprove the notion of technological unemployment. And, you know, they go back to things like, yeah, they said that about the printing press and they said that about the, you know, the, the, the various looms and the different things, you know, and it never happened. And I'm like, you know, there's a big difference because those machines needed people to operate them. And machines now don't need any operators. They need a few engineers and you know or technicians to maintain them, and then they're good to go. You know, and it's only a matter of time before we even automate the technician part before we have robots that are running around repairing stuff. And yeah. the only thing that can compete with that is sweatshop labor. And as soon as that's not even you know competitive anymore, those jobs are all going to go away. And that's we live in a system where in order to be able to survive, you have to find a way to be useful to somebody who's better off than you are. And yeah. it's not in their best interest to, to to have you, so they find ways to eliminate you. And that can only go on for so long. And, in, I mean, in the old days, labor unions had a lot more power. And this is one of the things that scares me the most about the free market, you know, ideology is that that would just get rid of any protections at all that we have against, you know, exploitive workplace and such. I mean, you think about it, that's, you know, they say, well, they're going to these other countries because there's no regulations in those countries. And I said, yeah, those countries are also full of essentially sweatshop slave labor camps. That's yeah. what they amount to. That's yeah. what happens when you have no regulation. You're not really selling a story to me here that I'm just going to go along with, you know, that that's somehow better. You know, yeah. What's the economy like in Denmark? Well, it's not too bad, actually. I mean, um, a lot of the things that Peter asks for in the film, we actually have that already in Denmark mm. and in, in Scandinavia. We have uh, socialized Medicare and uh, free education. We have uh, uh, a lot of the things that you would take to court privately in America. We have public uh, institutions to do that for you, so that would not cost you anything. You you will not be able to be poor. You will not have to live on the street if you don't want to. And uh, uh, things like, of course, this is all cracking up a little bit now. But um, it it has been uh, like that for quite some time. And uh, that's due to uh, a long tradition of social democrats started about um, 70 years ago. And uh, that kept away the communists because that would have ruined everything. But the social democrats, they sort of bridged all the values that we had already. You know, Denmark is the oldest um, democracy in the world that has been uh, running uh, totally. We had a system of uh, gathering groups and voting for everything, and, and that goes back to the Vikings. So it's always been like that. We never had a time where we really had totalitarian or dictatorship, and that means we have moral standards that that nobody really can touch we have a i mean we have a almost a, a government similar to uh you know a neo liberalism or something neo uh, neoconservatism now but they cannot change for the 
discourse of social democratic values, but they they cannot do that because the uh, votes voters would not allow them to. So uh, I think that's that has been a that has been a, a great confidence all the time that we have built instability because nobody can get so poor that they would really riot. Nobody can be so angry by anything that they would really really want to destabilize the system. But of course, everybody's a little bit unhappy and nobody has the money they like. But I think we have seemingly a good situation right now. It's not going to last, but right now it's okay. It sounds much better overall, and it also kind of proves Jacques' theories, though. As you said, you have lower crime rates, you have you know, less overall social problems. And mind you, it's, at that point, it's still somewhat of a socialist answer, so that's why it's, it's slowly you know, going to break down if it doesn't change. But Overall, though, it does prove a lot of the other aspects. Now, what about your prison system? I know some of, like, Norway, for example, has a very unique prison system. What's it like in Denmark? Is it more traditional or...? No, uh, it's uh, it's the same. It's it's very similar. We have uh, a strong uh, collaboration within the police and the social system and the schools. And they work together every time they find situations, issues, trouble, kids, or whatever, they, they try to work on before they get into prison, before there's actually a crime committed. And uh, this could be much better, of course, but uh, it actually works in the sense that people, they are not put into prison very young age. They are not put into prison for, for small crimes. They are usually put into institutions where they will help you, um, social workers and uh, teachers will help you propel you back into society. So the rehabilitation part is very, very important to um, the crime system here. Right. No, that's that's very good, actually. that's I, I saw that in uh, the deleted scenes of Capitalism, A Love Story with Michael Moore. They had a kind of an expose on the prison system in Norway and how it was more of a rehabilitation center and how they had so few... Uh, like reoccurrences of crime after these people were done with them and uh, that's actually Senator Gravel is the one who taught me about the military or not the military obviously the the prison industrial complex that's slowly getting bigger is the corporations that are making profit off of prisoners and how disgusting that idea is and how they'll end up being you know because anything that's profit motivated will, will cause only things that create more profit well if we start allowing people to make money on prisoners, well, then they're going to be you know, motivated to make more prisoners. There was that horrible <laughs> example in, that, in, in his film where they privatized the local uh, equivalent of the juvenile facility, and so uh, one of the local judges got in bed with them, so to speak, and started putting more and more kids in there for dumb little things. You know, <laughs> like one of them threw, I guess, threw a stake at his stepfather and went to you know, children's prison for that, you know, just anything that he could to throw them in this facility. And he was getting paid by that company, you know, to keep feeding them kids. And <laughs> that's just, that's an example of this. And You're asking for trouble that way, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. You really are. And I guess now, I mean, what would you say is like, you know, is because of your celebrity status, do you think it's it's gotten any more attention to this direction? Has anybody asked you about it, maybe from the media over there? Well, first of all, I'm not sure I'm such a big celebrity, but second, I find it a little disturbing that the promotion is not steered more more up. I've tried to personally contact uh, journalists that are all interested, but it's like they cannot. Uh, 
they cannot move the you know what I would put it on front page or something like that. They they cannot seem to uh, look through uh, this superstition they have that this is probably something to do with religious uh, conspiracy theory whatever. Because if they actually spend time just going through the common sense part of the the film and the movement, uh, it would be very easy to look through that. But in Denmark, people are extremely afraid of being brainwashed with any kind of message. They like things to be down to earth, and they don't like shifts in paradigm. And that's, that is what it's all about now, isn't it? We we need a shift in paradigm. But uh, I hope that it will change. I know I, I definitely know that it will change, because we have a very strong... Uh, several very strong associations that uh, um, deal with preservation of nature and environment. And uh, it, when they discover this and they know, they will see how it fits into their agenda, I, I know they will support it. And I think for the whole Venus Project and, and Zeitgeist movement, I think it would be so great if you uh, started networking with all these different movements that are around there. Personally, I'm very inspired by a guy called Chris Martinson and his Crash Course, I think Annie Leonard with her story of stuff has done great things. There's uh, Meat Tricks, Food Incorporated, Transition Town, and all this that maybe they don't have the full picture or the full answer, but I'm sure that all parties could benefit from uh, a closer cooperation and collaboration because none of these movements have any money. So we we need to just uh, use the, uh, what do you call it, fire souls, the the ones that can... uh, the movers and shakers, that's the people we got involved by. No, and I and I don't disagree with you. The problem generally comes is that, unfortunately, activists become very uh, independent-minded on their own. It's like I know what you said about people in Denmark being scared of being brainwashed by something. And it's funny because we get that same argument sometimes. You know, just because we're a group of people who happen to like something, people immediately assume that there's something negative going on. And and I can understand that fear, um, but it's it, when you consider the fact that we're also a group that spreads awareness of brainwashing tactics. You know, for example, uh, we promote the film Cywar quite a bit. Um, Scott Noble, that filmmaker, he's also a supporter of the resource-based economy model, and right now he's making a series of films exposing propaganda, exposing brainwashing tactics, exposing all kinds of stuff. And I mean, especially when you think about how we. You know, I know that through the Zeitgeist movement and the different things that I studied because of the Zeitgeist movement, advertising doesn't work on me anymore. Um, you know, it doesn't make me interested in buying anything. I look at it and I'm like, okay, well, they they may, you know they have this hot girl in the bikini eating some yogurt, and I guess that means I should eat some yogurt. <laughs> you know, that doesn't work on me, man. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to try again. You know, and. Also, I mean, I noticed it, it, it is tough because of that, you know, any large group of people, you know, and people get, they get fears of it. And it's, and nowadays I, I run into that sometimes when I'm on Facebook, there'll be different people that are saying, well, this worries me because there's all these people who like it. And the only problem I have is that it, that, that in of itself is a lack of critical thinking. You know, you can't just say, well, you know, it's obviously a cult because there's a large group of people who like it. So therefore I'm going to reject it, you know, um, <laughs> Even though, uh, I mean, if we were this big, large group, then you know that, that you know we're we're still so diverse and made up of so many other smaller groups of people from different cultures, you know, and it's 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 common sense, like you said, that that is kind of a problem, you know, is that people don't really recognize that. I find that all the time during debate, people will overcomplicate something 
so much when it really doesn't need to be complicated at all. Like the money system and the way the bank systems work is overly complicated on purpose so that nobody will ever even think about, you know, trying to figure out their scheme. And then when you think about the way our culture is changing, uh, mathematics on the level that are necessary to understand fractional reserve banking, for example, it's it's such a blasé, boring concept that only the rare people that really, really like math are ever going to look at it. And that allows them to keep doing it. You know, there are so many other aspects, just in personal relationships and such. You know, I people call me all the time to give them advice about relationships, and I sit and I listen to them, and generally it's they just overcomplicate it so much. They put all of these extra things in it. I'm like, you know, this person is obviously bad for you. Why why are you with them? And then they go on for three hours giving you all these stories, and I'm just like, I come back to the original question, this person is bad for you, why are you with them? You know, because they're trying to hide from the truth. They they want it to be overcomplicated. You know, common sense would be so much easier and that's that's really what, what sold me on this is that it, it it's not that it's some, you know, ideology that you can't grasp, but it makes sense that first of all you should, you know, not consume more than we have, that we should be mindful of how much the earth has. You know, these things really are common sense. And it's it's amazing to me when I debate them with people, particularly the ones that have been brainwashed. This is the ironic thing. You know, once you study this, uh, the century of self, Cywar, they both talk about the role that Edward Bernays had, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that he had in brainwashing uh, the masses, that big companies and governments came to Edward Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he does, he just admitted it. It wasn't like some like if you go to Century of Self, they had an interview with him at a dinner somewhere and you know, Edward Bernays admitted to what he did and why he did it. And it wasn't even you know, so it's not like it's just some conspiracy film where you gotta you know, you take these quotes from somebody and, and think, Well, okay, I hope that this person was right. No. You get there's video of the guy saying that that's why he did it and they asked him to do things like brainwash women to smoke to convince women that smoking was their freedom. And it's it's stuff like that, that 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 people really need to be scared of. And essentially, uh, we're in a position of essentially being anti-propaganda, anti-advertising, anti-brainwashing. It's something that Jacques says very strongly is that critical and analytical thinking skills are the key. That's how you stop fascism. That's how you stop brainwashing. That's how you stop propaganda is when you can critically and analytically think any any person trying to pull the wool over your eyes, you'll smell them out immediately. And that's different than suspicion. Don't just be suspicious for the sake of being suspicious. Really analyze to the bottom of things. And that's it's actually ironic that it's it's the way that the conspiracy group people in particular reacted to this that has made me more uh skeptical of that stuff than anything, because the crazy things they come up with, like, well, Venus is the morning star, and the morning star is Lucifer, so therefore it's the you know it's the Lucifer project, and you know just that kind of stuff that they put together is I mean like I look at them and I'm like you realize how silly that is right? Yeah, that's yeah. so. I, I know I know stuff like that goes on in America. I think to a extent that we cannot just we can simply not just we can just not grasp it here in Europe. We don't understand. It's like you have that uh, Bible Belt that has distorted any kind of serious discussion for years in America. I feel I feel with you, I'm, it must be horrendous to live with. We don't have it the same way here in Europe, I think. Um, maybe we have it with the Muslims a little bit, but uh, first of all, they don't have all that power politically, and uh, second, 
um, I think it's also is changing a little bit. But what we do have is um, a lack of ability to think in the long terms. If you can argue with people, tell them all these uh, common sense uh, scenarios, they will still not want to grasp it because they say, well, I'm still I'm still smoking even if I know it's unhealthy. I'm still drinking too much, sleeping too little. Uh, I'm still unfaithful to my wife and whatever. I, I'm, but I'm happy. So that's I think that's the rationalization that a lot of people do nowadays to survive because otherwise you can't look yourself in the mirror and say you're living on a lie. Everything you do from you wake up till you go to bed is a lie. That is very hard for people to realize because then they have to change themselves. And that's another aspect that I think we need to address sooner or later. That is that every little detail we find in society will be aspects of ourselves. We are not victims of a society or a system. We are actually sustaining it every single minute by our, our mindset, by, by our lack of imagination, and, and by our um, uh, laziness. So it's it's not like there's somebody evil out there that we have to get rid of. It's actually a whole, like I said, it's a collective consciousness issue that we have to address on both an external way and, and an internal level as well. It's like we're stuck in a collective unconsciousness is the word I would use it for. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like we're so asleep. And it's it, everything you just said clicked into my head that moment from the network film where he says, it's like we just want to be left alone. Please leave me alone in my living room and let me have my toaster and my microwave and my steel-belted radials, you know. Yes. Is that we've, we're so stuck in that, and it's you know it. I, I've brought this story up on other shows, so you know, bear with me, those of you who have listened to it. But I, I play online video games sometimes. I don't play them anywhere near as much as other people do. I just do it because some of my friends live too far away for me to hang out with, so we could do it on the internet. And you know, I went into this one Ventrilo channel, and and these people were so. Basically, I, I talked to them, and politics came up, and of course, me being a political activist, that you know got interesting, and we talked a little bit about the Iraq War, and then I, I left that channel. It's a voice chat thing, like Teamspeak or Skype, and and then they they asked my friend to tell me never to bring up politics again, and you know they were really offended, and you know that they don't want to talk about that stuff ever, and it's just so gauche to talk about that, and then like. A few days later, I walk into my friend's room in that same channel, and we have all of these grown adults who are yelling and screaming at each other. I mean, really mad at each other because their their raid on World of Warcraft didn't go right. You know, <laughs> me coming in there and talking about the Iraq War and how it was a bunch of bollocks was, was not <laughs> acceptable. But, you know, screaming about not getting your fictional digitized gear that doesn't exist, that's acceptable, you know. It's just amazing to me, you know. Like I said, collective unconsciousness. You know, they they they're more worried about their their American Idol, who's going to win American Idol, than they are about presidential elections. And you know, I I did a whole show about that, and it's still my favorite. I would recommend it to anybody. My favorite V Radio ever was on the subject of sheeple, and we went and it was about two different. We took two different videos and we played them, and the panel discussed the different things that people were saying, and. And one of them was uh, a video about there was like this guy went out with a microphone and a you know a camera and he went in you know interviewing people who were standing outside in Alaska, mind you, where it's freezing, 
to to get into the into the do, into the bookstore so that Sarah Palin would sign their book, and <laughs> she's asking all these people. You know, this guy's asking all these people. Well, you know, do you want Sarah Palin to be president? They're like, oh yeah, she's going to be a great president. Okay, what can you tell me about Sarah Palin's views on foreign policy? And then you get crickets. <laughs> you know, <Ouch. laughs> they have no idea. Who, you know what Sarah Palin's policies don't, are. Don't she has any idea. She doesn't have an idea. <laughs> right. You know that's I know. And then like they said, well, there's you know she opposes all these things I don't like, like like cap and trade, you know, which is a global warming thing, and you know, and so the guy says, well, what do you dislike about cap and trade? And then the person pauses for a moment and says, I don't really know, but I don't like it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that's that's the state of things. I mean, it's. Then in the second half of that show, we we went to a video. It was called "Why Ron Paul Did Not Win the Florida Primary," and they go to this beach right after the Florida primary, and they ask people who they voted for and why, you know. And and like there was a you know a black gentleman, for example, and he said he was voting for Barack Obama, and you know they said, well, what's your favorite policy of Barack Obama? And and the guy couldn't list anything off, and you know. And I don't don't get me wrong. It, it, I don't, I wouldn't have liked it any better if if a white person voted for Barack Obama and had no idea who their policies were. It just kind of pointed to there. Were, it was like a dog and pony show. We were offered two major candidates for change, Hillary mm. and Barack. So we had a woman and a black person, and that they were being pushed forward because it was almost like they were sending a subliminal message to us of this is change, even though either of them were just more of the same. You yeah. know, and, and they've not changed anything, right? That's all. The same because it's not they they're not deciding anything they're like the little figure on the cake they they have actually no power and I don't even know how much they they care uh, it's the corporates that control the world and the media's and uh, uh, that cannot be changed before we get rid of the monetary system I, that's one thing I certainly agree with uh, the Venus Project about and I've I've said similar things for years. But one thing that we got to take into account as well, which is a little difficult to uh, discuss, that is that if you didn't have free citizens, so to speak, that could that you could manipulate to go out and buy anything they liked, we would not have this kind of uh, overconsuming. It's because of that relative freedom that people have that we have all the problems. So actually, democracy is part of the problem. I'm not saying that I have a better suggestion that than democracy. But if you don't have free citizens, you cannot manipulate them the same way because the, the true way to manipulate people is to manipulate them while they think they're free. That's very true. That's actually something I've said more than once is that the, the capitalist fascism is far more insidious because at least in a, a communist you know fascism, it was really obvious you were being controlled. But in a capitalist fascism, particularly when they, they feed you this republic model, you know, well, yeah, it's a republic. You guys are free. You get to choose one of our pre-chosen, you know, candidates who sold his soul to a corporation. You get to choose which one of these terrible people will run your country. Isn't that awesome? Wave your flags around. We're free. We're free. You know, and it's it's so uh, it's it's so much bullshit. I mean, I hate to be so blunt, but it's um, people don't recognize the power of corporations, and and that's something else we talked about on the subject of sheeple was it's like the Romans and their bread and circuses to keep the people placated, yeah. you know, yeah. and and thinking that they were being taken care of, and it's uh, I mean what is I mean what is politics like in Denmark I mean it, it, you know how does that play out? I think maybe the 
difference here is that that we had more on stake uh, because everybody was fighting in Europe for centuries. So in the end, people got so fed up with that that just to maintain peace was very important. And that's probably why we don't allow people to walk around with guns and stuff. Uh, So we want people to be uh, content, not because we want people to be content, because only because it's less expensive that way. You know, I don't think right. it's out of uh, any kind of uh, human consideration. It's it's simply more practical. And that means we don't have these big um, contrasts, I guess. And also, politically, people seem to be a little more educated here, maybe, because we have more choices. We have maybe 12 different parties that people can choose from and... Uh, uh, Theoretically, anybody, any one of them could be president or you know minister, uh, and and so we don't end up with these two candidates that may be just equally bad that you have to choose between. We we don't end up in this, uh, I, I think, simplified scenarios that you uh, that you painted yourself into in in America. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, other parties in our country are a total joke. You know, they don't get any exposure that we don't give them. And yeah, and all of the governments that have more parties and more choices definitely do a lot better. Um, I know, for example, uh, um, basically, I mean, it's like we talked about this because, like, you know, obviously working with Senator Gravel, he's really big on the direct democracy model, which I don't think is great for everything, but it's certainly better than a republic. And a lot of these constitution people, they, you know, they're all big on, no, no, it's a republic, you know, because otherwise it's mob rule. And, and I do agree that, you know, the mob can come up with some pretty stupid ideas, but if I had to choose between the two of them, you know, people are going to tend to vote for what helps the most people, whereas a politician is only inclined to vote for, you know, I mean, unless the, unless it would be harder for a corporation, for example, to bribe the entire population of a country. Yeah, you know? exactly, exactly. Although it do, it does happen, you know, mm-hmm. look at Italy. Uh, what happens there? That, that's just crazy. That's I mean that's worse than anywhere. But that's part of their culture. And by the way, they were Romans. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very very true, very true. Um, you know that's uh, this has really you know um, been an awesome conversation. I mean I have to say uh, you know now that this has all gone down and, and you've gotten more involved and and all of that. I mean. Can you can you think of a moment, you know, when when it clicked into your head this resource-based economy idea and you know and really germinated there because that's what it feels like to me it just it gets in your head and after you truly understand it, it it just you start to your awareness of it starts to spread into everything you see you think to yourself you know we could do this better we could do that better I mean you know yeah. was it was it when you read his book or was it you know or was there any one moment in particular that you feel would be that moment of awakening uh, first of all, I totally agree with you that something strange happens in your brain once once that concept really uh, clicks in. But I think to me it happened when I saw uh, his speech on the COP15, uh, you know, the the meeting in Copenhagen. Right. He was he gave an amazing lecture there where he was just standing erect for uh, an hour and a half, never uh, stumbling over a word or anything. Like, you know, a 24-year-old guy, he was just so extremely sharp. And um, I thought, first of all, this guy, I want to be like him when I'm 90. <laughs> how he was that back then. And second, at that time, I realized this guy has just thought everything through, every little detail. 
I may not agree with everything he says, but I'm sure that he's the best choice that you can come across anywhere in the world right now. Uh, that little hesitation was is maybe because in Scandinavia we like maybe the more natural designs, more uh, wood and wool and straw and uh, clay and things. And we do have a lot of that already. So that would not, I think, affect nature very much if we used more natural materials. But that is a small detail. Uh, anything, it seems that he came up with, he had just thought it very, very clearly through. And that's what it's about these days. You cannot, you cannot create a new religion, and you shouldn't. You should base things on scientific research and, more importantly, common sense. Because you cannot make research in anything, uh, but you can use common sense within all fields, I think. That's very true, and it, it's also so much of it is about the approach. Like a lot of people, they, they want to talk about transitional technology right now, and I, I often have to tell them, I'm like, the reason we can't answer your question is we need to know when the transition starts. We need to know what the state of technology is at that moment. We need to understand what the state of resources is at that moment. I mean, we could give you an answer that would have happened, you know, if for some reason we threw a lever and tomorrow there was a resource-based economy, but that's never going to happen. So... We have to know what the circumstances are. And what's more important is that we understand the methodology, the problem-solving concept. You know, it's, uh, you know, that's what needs to be dealt with first is the way that he approaches things. And I find myself, you know, using it in my, in my day-to-day life, you know, eliminating excess waste in different things that I do, you know, whether it's cleaning my house or, you know, or whatever. There's, there's kind of a whole philosophy to it. Uh, and if you if you apply that to then the sciences that we already have, it changes everything. It's like a friend of mine, his name is Kevin, and uh, I've known him for years, and uh, he's a robotics engineering student. And um, wh- the funny thing is, is he's still a student, and the, the auto industry already wants him because there was this thing, you know, he went on some tour or something, and they said, you know, okay, well, we have this problem making this one part, and this is how we solve it, and... And he's like, well, what do you mean? That doesn't sound like it's working. He's like, well, we've invested a lot of research in how to solve this problem, and you know, we've just given up on it. And he's like, oh, really? Then, you know, and my friend Kevin was not okay with that, so he went and fixed the problem. And then they were like, wow, you know, they just these are guys who, you know, paid professionals were not able to fix this, but he was. And so now, you know, I, you know, they they wanted him like before he even got into the industry. They want to they want him working there right now. And um, he's obviously going to finish going to school. But the point is, though, is that there was a it was that same attitude. It was the you know, you don't just, you know, uh, allow yourself to be convinced that you can't solve something. You have to be more creative and figure out an inventive way of handling it. You know, yeah. um, the different things that Jacques talks about, you know, the the fact that a car should just be able to detect that somebody is drunk and take over, not make extra laws about drunk driving. You know, that doesn't work anyway. We've already seen that that doesn't work. You know, or eliminate the need for everybody to have their own car in the first place. There's just so much, you know, uh, efficiency and put in all of it. And people, I guess, they they seem to, they're scared of change. And and that causes them to to, to worry about, you know, well, what is this change going to do? I mean, I know that I'm, I'm eating and I'm drinking well now, so everything should be okay, right? You know, and it's, it's one of the things that Annie Leonard points out in Story of Stuff, you know, when she says that she bought that little radio and, you know, it was like $3.14 and she's like, how could I possibly be paying $3.14 for this thing? You know, all of the stuff that went into making this, you know, 
we in the United States in particular, we are totally ignorant of all of the work that goes on in other countries where people are highly oppressed that is necessary for us to get that thing for $3.14. You know, we are not aware of the fact that the rest of the world is also kind of getting fed up with us. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's not going to go on that way forever. We use way more resources than everybody else in the United States, and we protect that with military might, you know, all in the all under the guise of uh, making the world safe for democracy, quote-unquote, um, which is a neoconservative idea, which is the reason you find the United States in all of this foreign adventurism, is that neoconservatives believe that the only way to make the world safe for the United States is to make those into democracies, too. But I think that's a hidden agenda there, because what they say is we want to liberate people, we want to make them free, give them democracy, but they don't say the next sentence, so we can manipulate them, so we can make them into consumers, so we can advertise and we can start selling our stupid stuff to them right. or having them work for us. They don't say that. They omit that last part of the sentence because they give a sh they don't give a shit if, if they are free or not, but they want them as consumers. And that's why uh, it's so elusive with, with the way democracy is spread now also from this part of the world I live in because we actually just want a bigger market. Nobody wants to buy our goods here. Let's let's find another country where they want. We we more or less abandon smoking here, so we can sell them sell it to the third world. What about the CFC gases that are actually creating most of the greenhouse effect? We can still sell it to the third world. Who right. Cares? Yep. Just give it over to them. Dump it over there. That's you know. Annie talked about that too. Externalizing costs. Well, if there's problems with pollution, we'll just build all the polluting plants in other countries, and <laughs> yeah. you know. That's that's how arrogant the the way things are at the top here, and you know any empire that does that forever is going to fall. And I, the funny thing that I, I tend to bring up that most people forget about is that Caesar wasn't assassinated for being a tyrant. Very rarely are are leaders assassinated who are actually tyrannical. Caesar was assassinated because I mean don't get me wrong, Caesar was still a Roman, owned slaves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in addition to that, um, he had passed law forcing um, all of the uh, people in uh, Rome to, if you were going to have a business, 60% of your workforce had to be uh, Roman citizens. And that was to protect the Roman economy. And that was the final straw. These people who were so dependent on um, slave labor insisted, you know, obviously that they needed to kill him for that, you know, because that, that would have been the only way to protect the economy. <laughs> That's an interesting point. Yeah, why not? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that corruption that started with this, with the initiation of the Roman Empire and and certainly uh, peaked by the invention of uh, Christianity. Uh, that uh, I think we still we still suffer from that uh, from the the waves of that. Hello. Hello. Oh, sorry about that. I'm back. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> no, that was fine. Um, anyway, uh, so what was the last thing you said? I apologize. Uh, yeah, no problem. I I said that uh, after Caesar was killed and uh, all the horrendous things of the uh, stupidity of the Roman Empire really took out and and uh, uh, all the you know uh, the art forms from the classical Greek world was. Uh, thrown out of the window and instead it was replaced with the uh, sex and violence 
that all that went through the, the whole Western world, and it's uh, it's been um, uh, the essence, the core of the American society, I think, to uh, make money on sex and violence. If you look at an American film, it's it's basically well, it's much more violence than it, than it's sex. Uh, in, in in Denmark, I think it would be opposite, but still. Violence is so important, and it was such an important part of Christianity too. Uh, not only in the beginning, but all the way up till maybe the 18th century, violence was uh, something you transcended from. That was entertaining. That was uh, that was, you you went to the marketplace to see somebody get killed. Uh, so it's so built into our society, and it's so old that it will not change easily. And people are so adjusted to it that they will feel very uncomfortable if you if you start introducing common sense because it's the whole world that is collapsing for them. It's everything they have known. It's everything they can look up in any part of the media, any book, anywhere they go. They, they will feel that that world is taken away from them. Uh, and that's, that's why it's a paradigm shift. That's because we're changing everything at once. <laughs> Yes, very true. That's very true. And that's one of the reasons also why you end up with three, you know, three hour movies trying to explain this stuff. And it's and even then it doesn't do enough. I mean, I know people they ask me, you know, how do I become a good spokesman for the Venus project? I tell them I'm like, well, you know, do all of Jacques stuff and and study all of Peter's stuff, but you know, that's just the beginning. You're going to want to have a better understanding of all the various symptoms, and that's why I tell them to go to my must-see TV section and watch every movie. And not all of them are about resource-based economy. Some of them are about this is how money gets into war, this is how money gets into food, this is how money gets into your politics. This is you know just the different effects, so that you have these examples because when you're trying to relate these ideas to other people. Um, basically, you, know, you end up in the situation where they're going to have questions you may not be able to answer because maybe you don't know quite as much about the Iraq War, or maybe you don't know quite as much about the military-industrial complex. And yeah. those are all major aspects. Uh, the food issue, Monsanto, evil company, and the terrible things that it's doing to our food. You know, it's you have to have a lot of facets covered. And uh, I, so, I, go it's ahead. It's so complicated. It is. It is, and that's why when, when you ask Jacques a question, sometimes he'll go on what looks like this ridiculous amount of tangents, and then he'll get back to your answer. And what you find out is that if you, what you realize in that moment is if he hadn't said all that other stuff, I'd be asking him questions about all the things he talked about. <laughs> I, I'd be I'd be asking him, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? Well, you know, and, and it's funny because that that kind of thinking ends up infecting you. I found that it, it happens to me, you know, and and my hearing is perfectly good, but I, I'll hear the question and you know I'll end up saying all this other stuff that may they may not understand why is relevant right away. But in any case, it was really great having you on. I'm sorry about that brief little um, issue there. I kind of work out of a home studio, and my son was making some noise, so I needed to go deal with that. No problem. Um, it was great having you on, and um, you know, thank you everybody for tuning in to V Radio. Please check out my website, vradio.org. That's v hyphen or v minus radio.org. Uh, we'll be looking for donations for February. You can find archives of more shows like this one, my musty TV list that I suggested earlier of a list of free documentaries you can watch online. Um, thanks again, Martin, for coming in and uh, coming on. And, uh, you know, if anything's ever going on in Denmark you want to report on, or maybe I'll call you on later at a different time to be a panelist if you're ever going to be available. Oh, I would love to. I think a lot of the things that you are asking for, they would be easy to apply in Denmark. Excellent, excellent. 
Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. I'm going to leave you guys with some parting words from Jock and Roxanne. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.